Wednesday, January 9th, 2013, episode number 32 of the Football Nation Today podcast with Alex Reamer on footballnation.com. Football Nation Today podcast, hosted by yours truly, Alex Reamer, published every Wednesday on footballnation.com, and for your downloading convenience in the iTunes Store, please subscribe to the Football Nation Today podcast in the iTunes Store if you have yet to do so. We are gearing up for what is, in my opinion, the best football weekend of the year. Like last weekend, we have four NFL playoff games, but these are divisional round games. And not just wildcard games. And my goodness, the storylines are running rampant in each of these four games. And in my opinion, arguably the biggest storyline of the weekend is one that nobody, at least to my knowledge, has spent any significant time talking about this week. We talk a lot about the Broncos and their 11 consecutive wins to close out the season. And the MVP caliber season Peyton Manning had, one year removed from injury, and that's all true, and we've talked about that a lot here on this podcast throughout the year, but are we forgetting about what Peyton Manning does in the playoffs? Are we forgetting about that? I'll expand on that momentarily in the first down segment, also looking at questions such as Matt Ryan and the pressure he faces this week with the Falcons. Are the Texans spooked by the whooping the Patriots gave them on that Monday night in December, and can they give the Pats a game this Sunday in Foxborough? And also, Packers 49ers is undoubtedly the game of the weekend, as far as I'm concerned. We'll preview that matchup too. Won't say too much about the wild card games. A lot has been said about those. We're here in the middle of the week, but I am actually shocked and amazed that the conventional wisdom regarding Mike Shanahan's handling of Robert Griffin III's knee injury last Sunday is just to write it off and say, oh, well, players play, coaches coach. Meh, what are you going to do? Shanahan had to put his starting quarterback in there because that's what you do. Robert Griffin wanted to play, you let him play. Yeah, what can you do? That's the conventional wisdom. And people are just writing it off. And I'm amazed by it. I'm shocked. In fact, I'm dismayed by it. In my opinion, that's not nearly looking into this thing deep enough. Not in the least. So that's how we'll start off the first down segment. Second down segment, it's the big ups- It's the uh, biggest off-field NFL story of the week. Excuse me, got ahead of myself. This week, once again, it's the NFL coaching carousel. I've had an epiphany over the past week about what kind of coach every team with a coaching vacancy should look to hire. I have a strong take on that. I'll give you that in the second down segment. Then in the third down segment, it's time for the big up slowdown segment, looking at various issues from Ray Lewis's dance and the legitimacy of it and his right to do it. At the end of the Ravens win over Indianapolis last Sunday, and Arian Foster changing his Twitter avatar in lieu of this big matchup against the Patriots. And then the fourth down segment, it's the Reamer rant, looking at Brent Musburger, who had the gall to call A.J. McCarron's girlfriend beautiful on Monday night in the BCS National Championship game. You will not believe the backlash that Mr. Musburger's comments have caused. It's Football Nation Today, episode 32. We'll be back in a moment. My name is Alex Reamer.
So as I said, where we are starting today is a wild card weekend and Robert Griffin III's knee injury. And as I said, I'm just amazed, and I would even go as far as to say I'm dismayed, at the conventional wisdom here in the national media, everywhere. You know, it, maybe in Washington it's a little different. It should be different. But every national commentator or most national commentators have come out and said, ah, you know, you got to put your starting quarterback in there. He gives you the best chance to win. Shannon's just trying to win games. Players play. Football culture. You play through injuries. You play hurt. Eh, what are you going to do? Bad luck. What? Excuse me. I'm sorry. But, and maybe this is a little personal to me. Because we heard the same excuses around these parts in October of 2003. After then, Red Sox manager Grady Little left in Pedro Martinez too long against the Yankees in a decisive Game 7. It was clear to everybody, except apparently Little, that Pedro needed to be removed from that game. And Grady's defense for not removing Pedro was, oh, well, I asked him if he wanted to come out. He said no, so I left him in there. What? Of course, Pedro Martinez, one of the greatest pitchers of all time, wouldn't tap out of a decisive ALCS Game 7. Of course he wouldn't. It's the manager's job to remove him from the game. It's the manager's job to recognize that he no longer gives your team the best chance to win. Just like in last Sunday's game, it was Mike Shanahan's job as coach of the Redskins to recognize that Robert Griffin III did not give the Redskins the best chance to win that game. When asked about the injury, of course Robert Griffin is going to downplay it. Of course he's going to want to stay in the game because he's a terrific competitor. He's a professional football player. You do not become a professional football player if you tap out of playoff games. That's not how it works. Every NFL player, if given the option, would play in a playoff game of that magnitude. It's up to the coach to be smarter than that and overrule his player. And I'm just amazed at the negligence that this whole situation, in the way this whole situation has been handled. This was reported by CBS Sports earlier in the week. And I'm going to read verbatim from the article here. It's only four paragraphs. Uh, Redskins quarterback Robert Griffin III suffered a gruesome knee injury while running against the Ravens on December 9th when Haloti Nada's entire body collided with RG3. The rookie quarterback left the game for a single play, but then returned to the field in the same game before being replaced by backup and fellow rookie Kirk Cousins. This is where it gets interesting. The decision to put Griffin back in that game was, according to coach Mike Shanahan, cleared by Dr. James Andrews, who was on the Redskins' sideline. However, Andrews told the USA Today that he never did such a thing, that he didn't, that he didn't even get to touch or talk to him, alluding to Griffin, in that it scared the hell out of me. Griffin didn't even let us look at him, Andrews said. He came off the field, walked through the sidelines, circled back through the players, and took off back to the field. It wasn't our opinion. We didn't even get to touch him or talk to him. Scared the hell out of me, James reiterated to CBS Sports. So Shanahan lied. Right there, a month ago, December 9th. Griffin suffered that injury against the Ravens, that knee injury. Came back into the same game after just missing a play, 
And Shanahan afterwards said, oh, he was cleared by Dr. James Andrews and the medical staff. Um, no, he wasn't. So Shanahan's lying about Robert Griffin's injury right there. And he's being negligent about it. He's allowing his player, his franchise quarterback, to be negligent about it. And this isn't a player safety issue necessarily. I don't want to go down that road here. This is a responsibility issue. Mike Shanahan and the Redskins did not handle this injury responsibly. Like I said a couple of minutes ago, of course Robert Griffin, if given the option, would prefer to go right back to the game without being examined by doctors. As a player, that's what he is wired to do. But it's the coach's job to look out for him and know what's best for him. So the handling of the original knee injury on December the 9th was negligent, irresponsible. So then he's playing hurt the rest of the year. And he's hurt heading into the game last Sunday. And the Redskins scored touchdowns on their first two drives last Sunday. And Griffin looks okay. He looks like he did a week ago against Dallas. Hurt, but not injured. And of course, there's a difference. But then he throws a touchdown pass to tight end Logan Paulson. Puts the Redskins up 14-0. And then after that, it's clear Griffin re-aggravated that knee, and he's now gone from hurt to injured. And out there, you may be saying, oh, Alex, hindsight's 2020. Well, you were watching the game. You didn't know that. Uh, no, I actually did know that while I was watching the game. And if you didn't know that, then you're blind. The Redskins didn't cross midfield in the second, third, or fourth quarters. Let me repeat. The Redskins did not get past the 50-yard line. In the second, third, or fourth quarters. This offense was not the same after the touchdown pass to Paulson late in the first quarter. It was obvious from the second quarter onwards that Griffin had re-aggravated that knee injury and that he wasn't the best man to win the team that game. I mean, and it went to the point where he dropped a low snap and fell on the ground like he was shot. And then finally, he was removed from the game for Cousins, but at that point, it was too little too late. The Seahawks were already up, and the Redskins had lost. I'm sorry, but if while watching that game from the second quarter onwards, it wasn't obvious to you that Griffin had re-aggravated that knee injury, then you're blind. Then you are blind. So Shanahan, by not removing Griffin, cost the Redskins that game. I don't know if they would have won with Kirk Cousins. But I know they would have at least gotten past the 50-yard line once. Or maybe even twice. Ooh, how about that? Which they didn't do with Robert Griffin III because he was at 50% of himself. And that's maybe even being generous. I mean, you saw him hobbling down the sideline in one of his scrambles in the fourth quarter. I mean, come on, man. He was not the best man to win that game. And, you know, obviously... This could jeopardize Griffin's future. Now, this point, I don't think is as significant because an ACL is a very serious injury. And Griffin is at more risk now because he stayed in the game than he would have been if he exited the game. So this also falls on Shanahan, who, by the way, has only won one playoff game in the past 15 years. But players recover faster than ever from ACL injuries. So my biggest knock on Shanahan would be how his handling and negligence with Griffin's knee injury affected the Redskins this season versus the future. Because I look at Adrian Peterson, 
who suffered an ACL injury last December, and we all know Peterson came back eight months later and had an MVP caliber season at running back, one of the best seasons in the history of the NFL by a running back. Wes Welker tore his ACL in December of 2009 and came back in September of 2010 and didn't miss a beat. With modern medicine and <clears throat> the training that these guys all do, ACL injuries aren't as threatening as they once were to guys who suffer them in their 20s. You can come back faster and stronger than ever. It's the same thing with Tommy John injuries in baseball. I mean, now, pitchers who undergo Tommy John surgery, still, you know, in the prime of their careers or even before then, uh, come back stronger and better than ever. And they actually add a couple of uh, miles per hour on their fastball velocity. So... You know, these kind of injuries are not as threatening as they once were. Griffin isn't going to be 23 until next month. So I don't know if Shanahan's handling of Griffin here has cost him his career, but I do know it cost the Redskins a win last Sunday, a potential win last Sunday. And that, to me, is the big issue here. And the negligence here is unbelievable. And the lack of regard for his player is unbelievable. And it is also unbelievable to me that the conventional wisdom by the national media here is just to write this off. Unreal. So, the other big storylines from Wildcard Weekend, we'll quickly whip through these, because again, a lot's been said about it. Uh, Joe Flacco and the Ravens did beat the Colts last Sunday. Many are herald, herald, heralding, excuse me, this is a fantastic performance from Joe Flacco, but uh, here's the thing, Flacco only completed 12 passes in the win. He went 12 for 23. And a lot of the big plays, it was a three-yard dump-off to Ray Rice that went for a big gain because the Colts couldn't tackle, and Rice is a sensational runner. And then he made a long pass to Bolden, Anquan Bolden, down the sideline, down the right sideline. I mean, he just lobbed it out there, and Bolden made a terrific over-the-shoulder catch. Um, but that was more Bolden, not necessarily Flacco. Look, I mean, Joe Flacco's made the playoffs every year he's been in the league. He's won a lot of playoff games. He has a chance with a win this Sunday to go to his second consecutive AFC Championship game. So I'm not, you know, I, I exaggerate my dislike for Flacco as a player for, for effect. I, you can do a lot worse at quarterback than Joe Flacco in this league. Just my gripe with Flacco has always been, can he single-handedly win you a game? Which is what the elite guys do. And the answer is no. You know, I mean, the Ravens won last Sunday, and Flacco only completed 12 passes. Shows you right there, the Ravens do not win with Joe Flacco. You know, I mean, Joe Flacco does not lead them to victory. That's what elite quarterbacks need to do. And Flacco is not elite because he can't lead the Ravens to victory. And whenever they win, you look at Flacco, you see 12, 13, 14 completions, not elite. Sorry. Now, in the Bengals-Texans game... Houston completely outplayed Cincinnati, and it's amazing that the Bengals are an Andy Dalton overthrow of A.J. Green away from actually winning that game. But we look at the Bengals next season, well, obviously we'll talk about this more in the offseason, but next year, it's going to be Andy Dalton's third year, A.J. Green's third year, you know, another year with Marvin Lewis. The Bengals have made the playoffs two consecutive seasons now, have lost wildcard weekend in both instances. I think the Bengals have to up their expectations a little bit. With the Ravens on the decline, the Steelers seem to be on the decline, the Browns are going through an ownership change and another coaching change. The AFC North could be for the taking next season. As I said, the Bengals made the playoffs two consecutive seasons now. That defense is very good. 
the offense has young playmakers now entering their third years in the their third year in the league. Been a long time with Marvin Lewis, one of the longest tenured coaches in the game now since Andy Reid left Philadelphia last week. The Bengals should up their expectations for the 2013 regular season. I will leave it at that. And there isn't really much to say about the Vikings and Packers game, except we all learned an important lesson. Just because a quarterback can run doesn't mean he'll be good. It was announced before the game that Joe Webb will start in place of Christian Ponder due to injury. I and many others actually said, oh, you know, this might work out. Vikings could run the read option. Webb and Adrian Peterson, they'll be so dynamic. And <laughs> how wrong we were. Because Ponder sucks, but Webb sucks more. He can't even throw past five yards. So, yeah, just because you're fast, it can run the read option, doesn't mean anything. I think that was an important lesson for us to learn from Wildcard Weekend last week as well. But let's move on to this weekend's slate of games, the divisional round, and talk about, I think, the most underplayed storyline of the week thus far. And I am talking about the Ravens and Broncos. A game in which I give the Ravens a fighting chance in. Yes, you may be surprised to hear that, but I actually think the Ravens have a fighting chance in this game because for the first time in a long time, that defense is close to healthy. Yes, Ladarius Webb is still out at cornerback, but you looked up at the TV on Sunday and you said, oh, wow, Haloti Nada, Ray Lewis, Terrell Suggs. Look, they're all back. For one of the only times this season, guys like Danelle Ellerby and Paul Kruger played well last Sunday as well. So for the first time in a long time, and for one of the few times this season, that Ravens defense is close to healthy. And you also have, of course, the announcement that Ray Lewis is going to retire at the end of this postseason. And we talked about this a little bit in regards to Brian Urlacher and the Bears and how it might be the end of his career. And... I think this was a factor last year, too, with the Ravens. But, you know, I think when a guy like Ray Lewis is going to turn it in and Ed Reed's contract is up at the end of the year as well, I think there's there are intangibles there that could work in the Ravens' favor. You know, I, I really think there are. A guy like Lewis returned faster than ever from injury, made 13 tackles last week against the Colts, must have <clears throat> trained really <clears throat> hard, to return from injury like that and be as effective as he was last Sunday. Uh, but Ray Lewis and even Ed Reed to an extent, these guys, uh, this is it for him. You know, I mean, Lewis is done at the end of the playoffs. You are going to get 110% from him, both physically and emotionally. And you always get that from Lewis, but I think you'll get it even more so this Sunday against the Broncos. So... I think there's a big intangible aspect in this game with Ray Lewis's pending retirement and with Ed Reed maybe moving on that definitely works in Baltimore's favor. But in my opinion, the biggest thing that works in the Ravens' favor is Peyton Manning's playoff track record. In case you forgot, and it seems like a lot of people have forgotten this, but in case this has slipped your mind, let me remind you, Peyton Manning has a tendency to choke in the playoffs. Peyton Manning has a tendency to wet his pants in big games. Peyton Manning 
has lost his first playoff game seven out of 11 times. So more than half the time Manning makes the playoffs, his team is one and done. And now one of those divisional round wins the Colts had several years ago led to an AFC Championship game matchup against the Patriots where they went to Foxborough, scored three points, and lost. So, <laughs> not sure how much of a win that is. In case you forgot, against a good defense, which the Ravens certainly have, and could certainly have for one week, against a good defense, Peyton Manning is far from a sure thing in the playoffs. He did win a Super Bowl in 2006 with the Colts, but... He didn't play all that well in that postseason. The Colts really won in 06 because their defense stepped up in the month of January and into the Super Bowl. And you will remember Manning's performance in the 2009 Super Bowl against the Saints, throwing an interception to Tracy Porter. So, just in case you forgot, Peyton Manning is a choking dog in the playoffs. Maybe he won't be this year. That's possible, and the Broncos are rightfully favored in this game against Baltimore. But let's not guarantee a Manning versus Brady rematch in the AFC title game this year. Let's not guarantee that. Manning loses a lot in the playoffs. Like, a lot, a lot. And until we've seen that that's changed, can't write that off. And it's amazing to me, it's, it's, it's flabbergasting that nobody has brought that up yet this week. Now, I talked about the Brady versus Manning AFC Championship game rematch. That's the dream game for the NFL. That would be awesome. I mean, that would be all time. Patriots versus Ravens, again, would also be a great matchup. You have the Ray Lewis retirement and the matchup from last year. So either way, unless the Texans win, the AFC is going to have a magnificent title game next Sunday on their hands. But a look at Patriots-Texans in Foxborough this Sunday. It's the 4:30 game. I think it has to be closer. It has to be a closer game than the Monday night matchup in December. It has to be. But I don't think it will be much closer because the Houston Texans haven't been impressive since the middle of November when they went through that spell where they allowed 30-plus points to both the Jaguars and Lions. Now, the defense did finally play well last week against the Bengals, and J.J. Watt had a terrific game as well. They got Brooks Reed back, so the Texans' defense played well last week, finally. But the offense could not convert in the red zone, and they outplayed the Bengals for the full 60 minutes, and yet... They were an Andy Dalton overthrow away from being one and done in the playoffs. And what just strikes me about the Texans is, we've spoken about this before too, Gary Kubiak seems to want to play a 19-13 game, you know, or a 20-17 game. And he wants to be conservative, base his offense around short passes to the running back Arian Foster, the tight end Owen Daniels, and not really open things up and... You know, occasionally going over the top to Andre Johnson, but really basing the offense around screen passes to the running backs and the tight ends. And that's what he wants Matt Schaub to do, because maybe that's all he trusts Matt Schaub to do. But that's the way Gary Kubiak wants to play. And regardless of how the game is going, that's how he's going to play. He's going to stick his face 
in his laminated play sheet, not look up for the entire game, and that's what he's going to do. He's going to run with this game plan, stick with this game plan, and not alter it, no matter how many points the Texans fall behind. And I'm sorry, but that's not how you're going to beat the Patriots in Foxborough. And we'll talk about this in the Big Up Slow Down segment about Arian Foster changing his Twitter avatar, but... I don't think the Texans have the mindset either to go in there and avenge themselves against the Patriots. I just don't. This is going to be a two-possession game. Mark my words. The Patriots are coming off a week of rest, a week of rest which they desperately needed. Um, and, you know, I look at the Patriots team this year versus last year's team, which, of course, made the Super Bowl. I think this is a much better team. You know, I mean, the defense is better. I think the offense is better. The offense might be healthier if Rob Gronkowski is healthier than he was in the Super Bowl last year. Now, in 2010, the Patriots did beat up on the Jets on a Monday night game in December and then lost to the Jets in the divisional round. But looking back at that 2010 Patriots team, that was a team that was really rebuilding, you know? I mean, you had two rookie tight ends in Hernandez and Gronkowski. Uh, they made the transition from Randy Moss to Deion Branch in the middle of the season, and they won 14 regular season games, but they changed the face of their offense on the fly mid-season in 2010. Their defense was very young. Devin McCourty was a rookie. Patrick Chung was a rookie. Dante Hightower, Chandler Jones weren't drafted. Gerard Mayo was two, three years younger. Uh, Brandon Spikes wasn't really a factor yet. This was a much younger defense. Now you fast forward two, three years later, Guys like Mayo, McCourty, Spikes, all Super Bowl experience under their belt. They've gone deep in the playoffs before now. You cannot discount that at all. So I think this is a much better Patriots team than the one we saw in 2010. Hell, I even think this is a better Patriots team than the team we saw last year. They are destined for the AFC Championship game, and the Texans don't have what it takes to avenge their embarrassing loss on Monday night. It won't be as it won't be a blowout. It will be competitive. You have to think it has to be competitive. And Wade Phillips is a good defensive coordinator. And actually, for a stretch in the middle of that game last uh, in Monday night in December, he did contain the Patriots a little bit. People forget that, but he did. But the Texans just don't have what it takes to come into Foxborough and beat this Patriots team. As I said, I think they are destined for the AFC Championship game once again this season. And, and you know, we talk about Ray Lewis and, you know, the intangible factor there. Well, Tom Brady wants to get the Super Bowl title number four. And each year that passes is another year where he grows older without that fourth Super Bowl ring. So you always have to factor that in here as well with when it comes to the Patriots. Now, I look at the NFC quickly here, and I look at the Seahawks and Falcons, and some around here in the Boston area say that Tom Brady has the most pressure of any playoff quarterback. And in a big-picture sense, you can say that's true. But in my opinion, that's missing the obvious one, and that's Matt Ryan. He is under a lot of pressure this postseason. Because if Ryan loses this game, he goes to 0-4 in the playoffs, and then they have to ask themselves some serious questions in Atlanta about the coach Mike Smith and about this quarterback Matt Ryan. And are the Falcons then forever paper tigers with this group? Now, I think the biggest factor in this game is the other injury that was suffered in the Redskins-Seahawks game last week. Not Robert Griffin III, but Seattle defensive end Chris Clemens, who tore his ACL last Sunday and will be out this weekend. That's a massive injury, and that certainly plays in the Falcons' favor. The home field advantage could be a match, could be a factor too, 
but maybe not as much of a factor as you might think. Because you say, oh, and the home field advantage in the Dome, the Falcons need to make this a track meet, you know, make this an arena football style game. Try to play this game in the 40s if you can. You have that kind of offense on paper with Matt Ryan and Julio Jones, Roddy White, Tony Gonzalez, on and on. But, you know, the Seahawks scored 50 consecutive points, scored 50 plus points in two consecutive weeks this year to close out the regular season. Uh, their offense can score with the best of them as well. And they have some guys on defense and Brandon Browner and Richard Sherman who yap a lot, but who can also shut down receivers. So Roddy Jones and, uh, excuse me, so Roddy White and Julio Jones uh, are going to have a challenge on their hands this weekend. So I'm not sure how much of a lock this is for the Falcons. I think they have more advantage than the Seahawks do, the home field, the Clemens injury. But this is going to be a really tight game on Sunday. And all the pressure in the world is on Matt Ryan and trying to avoid going 0-4 in his career in the playoffs. And the Packers 49ers on Saturday night, as I said in the opening, to me is the game of the weekend. Uh, this is a pick em game. You could go either way. So when we talk about games like these, we have to look at some stats. And we always look at how the teams fare against each other. And if they've played previously in the season, that, of course, is a big help. And these two teams did play earlier in the season in Week 1. Now, obviously, both teams are very different than they were in Week 1, and the Niners have a completely different quarterback, but there's some interesting nuggets from that game, looking back on them now. For example, uh, Frank Gore rushed for 112 yards and 16 carries in Week 1, and you combine that with Colin Kaepernick's ability to run the read option, and you say, oh, this Packers defense may have some real problems containing the running game of the 49ers. And Alex Smith played really well in that game against Green Bay earlier this season, so this is a big, big game for Kaepernick as well. And look at the 49ers' defense. Justin Smith will be back from injury, which is huge for them because the Niners have to try to take advantage of a mediocre Green Bay offensive line. Aaron Rodgers was sacked 51 times in the regular season, most in the NFL. And in week one, he was sacked three times. So the Niners got to him before, and with Justin Smith back on the defensive line, they'll look to get to him again. You know, Navarro Bowman, Patrick Will, so those guys will be jacked up for this game. Now, in terms of big-picture legacy standpoint, this is huge for Aaron Rodgers, who is certainly on a roll. He connected with 10 different receivers last week in the win against Minnesota. And, you know, this is it for Rodgers. Is he in the Tom Brady class? Well, Brady is one of 11 quarterbacks to have won multiple championships. That's what Rodgers is going for now. That's what's next for him. We talk about the pressure on Brady from a big picture perspective. Well, a similar kind of pressure is on Rodgers now, too. He's recognized as an elite quarterback in this game with Brady, with Drew Brees, with Peyton Manning. But is Aaron Rodgers going to be historically great? Well, if he wins multiple championships, then you put him in that conversation right there with Brady, Montana, etc. So that, in the big picture sense, is what Rodgers is going for. But by far, game of the weekend, Green Bay defense is healthy, San Francisco defense is healthy, all systems go. Uh, fabulous game on tap Saturday night, a pick em kind of matchup. Can't wait for it. Moving on to our second down segment, where we take a look at the biggest off-field NFL story of the week. And this week, once again, it's the NFL coaching carousel. 
two hires have been made over the past seven days. Last week, we thought Andy Reid was on his way to Arizona, but instead, he is on his way to Kansas City. Reid will be the sixth Chiefs coach in the past 12 years. It is amazing how far this organization has fallen. Um, but this is still a good coaching job. It's a stable ownership group. It's a terrific fan base. And it's a fan base that will be patient with Reed. They're not expecting a Super Bowl winner right away. So it's still a low-pressure kind of spot for him. And I think next year there's going to be a lot of kinks to work out. Reed obviously has to find a quarterback. And that quarterback does not exist on the Chiefs roster. But Reed is a bit of a quarterbacking guru. He got something out of Kevin Cobb not all that long ago. And he got a lot of wins out of Donovan McNabb. And I think McNabb is one of the most overrated quarterbacks to ever play this game. So, I mean, I don't even know how much talent. Andy, I know Andy Reid needs more talent to quarterback than Matt Castle, Brady Quinn. But I'm not sure how much more he needs than that. So, Reid's a bit of a quarterbacking guru. The Chiefs need to find their quarterback. They need to get a good performance out of the quarterback. So, that's why I think Reid's a good hire for this club. They did have five Pro Bowlers this year, though I think that's somewhat misleading, but they have a great running back in Jamal Charles, has some veteran pieces on that defense, Tamba Ali on the defensive line, Derek Johnson, the veteran middle linebacker. So it's a 2-14 team, but it's not a 2-14 roster. You know, I mean, the Jaguars, you look at that roster and you say, oh my god, I mean, that is a 2-win roster. The Chiefs are not a 2-win roster on paper. They underachieved this year. Not by much. Maybe it's a 5-6 win roster, but it's not a 2 win roster. So I think that's working in Reed's favor as well. Um, you know, to, you can be a contrarian on Reed. You can say he's burned out. He should have taken a year off. He's 66-61 and 61 since 2005. Which is why Eagles fans, you know, are shocked that the national media uh, was, you know, lamenting Reed's firing last week. They said, what do you mean? I mean, the guy never took us to a Super Bowl after 2004, never won us a Super Bowl, and went 66-61 and 61 after 2005. He missed the playoffs in two consecutive seasons with the star-studded core of talent we had. I mean, it was time for the guy to go. And I agree with that, and I agree with that totally. And I don't think Reed is the guy to get the Chiefs to a Super Bowl. But with Tom Heckard as his general manager, the two are reunited. Scott Pioli is thankfully out. Um, Reed can be the guy to get the Chiefs back to respectability. Reed, combined with Heckard, can be the guys to get the Chiefs back, uh, to get the Chiefs some of their stability back. And that's what they've lost over the past decade. That's what they certainly lost in the Scott Pioli era as general manager. And that's what they'll look to, they'll look to restore with Reed as head coach in control of this operation, in conjunction with this GM, Heckard, and I think it will be, because we'll talk about this with the Jets in the Big Up Slowdown segment. The key is the coach and general manager working in concert with each other, and I think that will be the case in Kansas City. The Bills also made a hire. They hired Syracuse coach Doug Marone. Uh, Marone has a very popular blend of NFL coaching experience and head college coaching experience, which a lot of teams covet these days. He was the offensive coordinator for the Saints from 2006 through 2008, and the Saints offense led the, NFL led the NFL in yards in both 2006 and 2008. Marone led Syracuse to an 8-5 season this year in a victory over West Virginia in the Pinstripe Bowl, whatever that is. They play at Yankee Stadium, I guess. You know, pinstripes get it. Um, provided he hires a good defensive coordinator 
who can get more out of this very expensive defense. Uh, I like this higher, but I'm waiting to see how Marone fills out his staff. Dave wants that clearly isn't the guy on defense. Um, but Marone is an offensive guy, and that's a direction the Bills need to go in here. You know, they need to think big with this hire, and that's what they did with Marone. Uh, Chip Kelly is staying put, which puts the Eagles and Browns in a bind. Uh, both clubs, especially the Eagles, have expressed interest in Lovey Smith. And this is the epiphany I've had over the past week when thinking about coaching changes. Look at a guy like Lovey Smith who did take the Bears to a Super Bowl in 2006, and they did win 10 games this past season. And his players love playing for him. And Lovey Smith is not a bad coach. And Lovey Smith should coach again in this league. Lovey Smith should maybe even get another job to be a head coach in this league. But if you're going to think big, Lovey Smith is not the kind of guy you hire. With the way the league is going, I don't know why a team thinking big would even entertain the idea of hiring a guy like Lovey Smith. In today's NFL, you need to hire a coach who has offensive vision. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean the coach needs to be an offensive guy. Cheap plug here for some other folks on this site. I called up the Football Nation radio show on Patriots.com last Thursday, and I called up with this point. And, you know, Todd DeFries and uh, Bill... Enright, the host, and two friends of mine, I, you know, they they kind of dismissed me when I called up with this, saying you need an offensive guy, because they said, oh, well, you know what I mean, Bill Belichick's a defensive guy, and look what he does, and, you know, I, I misspoke a little bit in my call, and they didn't really see my big point. Um, when I say a guy with offensive vision, I don't mean a, a coach necessarily just who has an offensive background. What I mean is I need a coach who understands what wins in this league. Bill Belichick, yes, is a defensive guy, but he understands what wins in this league and has transformed the Patriots over the past five to six years. He has developed his quarterback, Tom Brady. Bill Belichick understands you need to have an elite passing offense to win in this league. And what do the Patriots have? What have they had for the past five years? An elite passing offense. Belichick this offseason was speaking with Chip Kelly about implementing the hurry-up. Why? Because he knows what direction the league is going in. Belichick understands that and has constructed his teams in that fashion. Belichick is a defensive guy. His background is defense, but he has offensive vision and has developed his quarterback in Tom Brady. I look at Jim Harbaugh and Pete Carroll. Same thing. Defensive guys, but they understand what wins in this league. Carroll especially goes with Russell Wilson over Matt Flynn in training camp because he knows you don't win in this league by playing it safe at quarterback. You win in this league by having a diverse and dynamic offensive attack. You need a coach with offensive vision. You need a coach who understands you win in this league by throwing the football. You need a coach who understands you win in this league by hurrying it up, spreading it out, being diverse and dynamic on offense. You can't hire a coach like Lovey Smith who thinks the key to win is by just playing good defense and protecting the football, playing it conservatively on offense. That's not the way to win. So if I were an NFL team, and if I'm thinking big, and if I'm thinking playoff wins, and if I'm thinking Super Bowl, I don't even grant Lovey Smith an interview. And he's a great guy. He's loved around the game. He should coach again in this game. This isn't an indictment on Lovey Smith. But a guy like him can't win in this league anymore. I wish that weren't the case. 
But it is the case. You need a coach with offensive vision. I wouldn't entertain anybody who didn't have that. And a guy like Smith, I don't think has that, unfortunately. Third down segment, it's the big episode on segment. I know you're all waiting for this. I say a statement and then affirm my agreement or disagreement with it by saying big up or slow down. Now, Ray Lewis is, of course, retiring at season's end. He came out for the final offensive play in last Sunday's win the Ravens had over the Colts. And Ray Lewis did one of his famous dance at the end in the backfield. Big up or slow down. Was his dance and the dancing in general too much on Sunday? Before I get to that, I want to first say congratulations to the Colts on a fantastic season. Great things for that franchise. Great story with Chuck Pagano. And by the way, Pagano is a defensive coach who has offensive vision. He had the right offensive coordinator in Bruce Arians, who may get a head coaching job now. But he also realized you win by throwing. And he let Andrew Luck throw. So Pagano also qualifies as a guy who has offensive vision. But nonetheless, back to the question, was Ray Lewis's dancing too much on Sunday? Uh, no, slow down, it wasn't. Okay? I mean, come on. Stop being a hardo. People, I hear people criticizing Lewis for this, saying, oh, what a selfish guy. I get, and yeah, Ray Lewis is selfish. And yeah, Ray Lewis is all about himself. But that moment, the last kneel down last Sunday, was all about Ray Lewis. Ray Lewis is right up there with Johnny Unitas and Cal Ripken in terms of athletes and Baltimore sports lore. Okay? He has earned the right to dance like that. Yeah, it was a selfish act. Yeah, it was a pompous act. Yeah, it was look at me, look at me. But Ray Lewis deserved that moment on Sunday. It was his final chance to say goodbye to the fans in Baltimore, and he did it in Ray Lewis style. Ray Lewis has earned the right to dance like that. And what a phenomenal career it's been. And look, when I talk about Ray Lewis, I'm talking about him purely as a football player. And I think most people are. You want to know why the murder trial hasn't been mentioned yet in any coverage because we're not talking about Ray Lewis as the person. And maybe we're all living in our sports bubble, ignoring a murder and, you know, or the, or the, or the possibility of it. Again, Ray Lewis wasn't implicated in the crime. Uh, so we're, maybe we're all living in our sports bubble and we're all being negligent and we're all being bad people. And, and I totally buy, I totally can accept that. But in the context of this show, whenever I talk about Ray Lewis, I'm talking about Ray Lewis as a football player. And Ray Lewis as a football player is one of the best football players I've ever seen. And he deserved the chance to say goodbye to the Ravens fans the way he wanted to last Sunday. So no, I don't think the dancing was a problem. Please, get the stick out of your ass if you think it was. You know, Ray Lewis has already signed up to be a commentator for ESPN. I can't wait. Ray Lewis has to realize, too, you, you got to be quick on TV. You know, 30-second hits on ESPN. You can't <sighs> start every segment with a dramatic pause. No, you can't do that, Ray. Not on TV. Not on Monday Night Countdown. So, <laughs> I think Ray Lewis is some morning with his style. But, hey, Ray, he deserved the right to say goodbye any way he wanted to the Baltimore fans last Sunday. Now back to the Texans and Patriots, Texans running back Arian Foster changed his Twitter avatar to a Dan Shaughnessy column that ran in the Boston Globe this week that called the Texans frauds 
and among other things, that the Patriots, the first team to receive two consecutive buys the AFC Championship game. <laughs> Big up or slow down. This will fuel the Texans. Slow down. I mean, why are the Texans, the media and the fans down there, so worried about what a bleep-stirring columnist like Shaughnessy says? I mean, this is what Shaughnessy does. This is perfect for him. Because his job as a columnist is to garner attention, and garner clicks to his column, and garner reads, and oh, he's certainly done that. And this is perfect for his shtick, right? Because if the Patriots win, it's, oh, well, you know, I was expected that they should have won, you know. There's a two consecutive buys, you know, do what they do against Denver. You know. And if they lose, he can trot out 1978 with the Red Sox and Bucky Dent. He can talk about 1986 and Bill Buckner. He can talk about 2003 and Aaron Boone. He can talk about the Super Bowl loss in 2007. He can talk about the Super Bowl loss in 2011. He can talk about, you know, uh, he can talk about the epic choke job of the Red Sox in September of 2011. If the Patriots lose, oh, it's perfect for Shaughnessy. And if they win, it's expected to win. What are you going to do? So it's perfect for a guy like Shaughnessy. And I'm not taking it away from him. My most successful columnist in the country doing what he does. But please, I'm, I'm amazed. Can't believe it that this column written by Dan Shaughnessy has garnered this much attention this week. And it shows that Texans' priorities are not in the right place. I mean, this is a team that wore Letterman's jackets to Foxborough for that Monday night game in December and, you know, got blown out, looked like the JV team in comparison to the Patriots varsity team. Uh, now they're worried about what Shaughnessy's saying and what Patriots color commentator Scott Zolak has been saying about them on the radio this week. I mean, th their, their priorities are not in the right place. Uh, they do not have the mentality, the Houston Texans, to win a game like they'll have to win on Sunday. It's going to be a little closer than it was on Monday night. It has to be, but... It's still going to be a multi-possession game. Mark my words. The Texans just have not shown that they have the mentality to win. And look at the way they've closed out the season. I mean, that game against Indianapolis two weeks ago in Week 17, they should have approached that like a playoff game. And for whatever reason, they laid a massive egg. So, please, I dismiss the Texans here. And maybe they'll use my words as bulletin board material. I hope so, because if they do, it even further cements the point that their priorities are not in the right place. Slow down. This will not fuel them. Now, we got to talk about the Jets for a second, because Rex Ryan and Woody Johnson held a press conference on Tuesday. After that conf press conference, it is clear that Rex Ryan will remain Jets head coach, regardless of who the GM is. So Woody Johnson is essentially forcing Rex Ryan, at least for a year, on the new general manager. Big up or slow down, is this a mistake? Big up. This is a huge mistake. You can't force the coach on the general manager. I like Ryan. I think he's still a good football coach. I think his defense still plays well for him. He's a terrific defensive mind. You know, like his, more so than his brother Rob, who was fired to, uh, yesterday as Cowboys defensive coordinator. Firing that, I think, was deserved. I mean, that Cowboys defense, even though they had injuries, still... The 19th-ranked defense with that talent on paper should have been a lot better than that. But Rex Ryan is a great defensive mind. He needs an assistant coach to handle the offense, like a North Turner. I think he certainly needs that. But I think Ryan, yeah, you can make the argument, deserves another chance with the Jets. But even bigger than that, the coach and general manager have to work in concert with each other. If they don't agree, 
If they don't have the same vision, it's a nightmare. Just look at the Red Sox last year with Ben Sherrington and Bobby Valentine. I mean, if they don't agree, there'll be backstabbing, leaks to the media, etc. As the Red Sox last year learned to tie it to baseball, you cannot win. You cannot have a functional team. Never mind winning. You can't have a functional team if the general manager and the coach do not see eye to eye. You cannot have a functional team if the general manager and the coach do not possess the long, same long-term vision. You cannot have a functional team if the general manager doesn't pick the head coach who he will work with on a daily basis throughout the season. So with this news, that whoever the new GM is has to be with Rex Ryan for at least a year, shows that the Jets may have not reached rock bottom yet. That is looking, actively looking, for great dysfunction. In the fourth down segment, we close out the show each and every week with the Reamer rant. And this week, we're looking at play-by-play man Brent Musburger, who had the gall to call Catherine Webb, Miss Alabama, and A.J. McCarron's girlfriend, gasp, beautiful, during Monday night's blowout of a BCS National Championship game. Here are the perverted comments that Musburger made about Ms. Webb. Now, when you're a quarterback at Alabama... You see that lovely lady there? She does go to Auburn. I want to admit that. But she also, this Alabama, and that's A.J. McCarron's girlfriend, okay? And right there on the right is D.D. Bonner. That's A.J.'s mom. Wow, I'm telling you quarterbacks, you get all the good-looking <laughs> women. Ah, it's a, what a beautiful woman. Wow, he's, A.J.'s doing some, some things right down in So if you're a youngster in Alabama, start getting the football out and throw it around the backyard with pops. Yep. That's it. That's all he said. That's why ESPN apologized yesterday. That's what the uproar was about. He called her a beautiful woman. And ESPN had to issue an apology for it. That's how soft we've become as a society. You can't even state the obvious anymore. That a quarterback has an attractive girlfriend. That's crossing the line. I mean, really. Musburger wasn't saying anything that any guy who was watching the game wasn't saying. <laughs> I was watching the game with some friends of mine on Monday night, or trying to watch it at least, that blowout. It was, was it, 35-0 or whatever it was in the se- third quarter, but everybody watching that game, the camera panned to McCarran's girlfriend, and every guy watching said, ooh, look at her, look how hot she is. Every guy said that. Every woman probably said that. Oh, gee, she's beautiful. Woo-wee! What a catch! That's all Musburger was saying. He called her beautiful. And that's over the line? ESPN had to issue an apology for that. Really? Is that where we are as a society? You can't even call a girl beautiful on TV. That's crossing the line. That's inappropriate. Dorks on Twitter all night. We're, you know, making the creepy Brent Musburger jokes for hours on end. Because, you know, everyone's a snarky ombudsman now. You know, sitting alone in their basement, tweeting on their iPhones and iPads. You know, instead of talking to real people, you know, if you can talk to the Twitterverse, oh, who needs real people in your life? When you have the Twitter, 
you know, making creepy Brent Musburger jokes for hours on end. Because everyone's an ombudsman now. Everyone has something snarky to say. And Musburger didn't even say anything. He called her beautiful. Is that over the line? I guess it is. Can't say that. Eyes are for reading. No, no. Can't say a girl's beautiful. Can't say anyone's attractive. Eyes are for reading. It's offensive to call someone beautiful. Who's offended by this? I don't even think Rick Santorum had a problem with Musburger's comments. He wasn't sexually lurid. He didn't go into detail about how she was beautiful. He didn't say, man, look at her tits. Am I right, Kirk? No. He called her beautiful. That's it. For 30 seconds in between plays. And then it was it. That was dropped. I mean, who's offended by this? Is Catherine Webb offended? Are women offended? You know, should Musburger have said every girl in the whole wide world and universe is attractive because we're all equal and we're all winners? I mean, maybe that's where Musburger went wrong. You know, by saying that Catherine Webb was beautiful, he, you know, kind of inferred that not every girl is beautiful. You know, and that made some girls at home maybe feel sad. Because everyone's beautiful. Everyone's a winner now. Everyone gets a trophy. That's where Musburger went wrong. By saying that Catherine Webb is beautiful and talking about it for 30 seconds, he inferred that not every girl is as beautiful as she is, and that's just mean. You can't say that. Shh. Everyone is as beautiful as everybody else. This is where we have come as a society. This is where we are now. You can't even call a girl beautiful without being over the line. Give me a break. Yeesh, nothing gets me fired up like stories like that. Oh my goodness. Didn't even say anything. Listen again to the clip. Thank you for tuning in to another impassioned edition of Football Nation today. As always, if you want to leave a comment, feel free to do so on our show page right here on footballnation.com. Also, feel free to send me an email. My email address is areamer at bu.edu. Also, feel free to follow me on Twitter or I... Do my fair share of tweeting, because, you know, like everybody else, I'm a snarky ombudsman. At AlexReamer1 is my Twitter name. Again, at AlexReamer1 is my Twitter name. Thank you for listening, everybody. We appreciate it. Enjoy the four divisional playoff games this weekend and all the storylines that go along with them. And we'll be back to recap it all next Wednesday. Next Wednesday. So long. Enjoy the games. Talk to you next on Football Nation today, next Wednesday.